Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Louis Bullard. Louis leads the Open Philanthropy Project's strategy for farmed animal welfare. He directs roughly $30 million in grants annually to nonprofits working to reduce suffering of farmed animals around the world. By virtue of his position, Lewis has deep insight into the state of the farmed animal welfare movement, which we get into in some detail. Unfortunately, there are some audio issues with this episode. MacBook Airs are the bane of my existence. Otherwise, I think this was a great conversation. Lewis is a world-class expert on this topic, and his passion for the cause is clear. We cover Open Philanthropy's approach to ending factory farming, the scale, tractability, and neglectedness of factory farming, the transition to plant-based meat alternatives, the hierarchy of suffering per calorie, whether you have to be a vegan to be an animal activist, the advocacy campaigns Open Philanthropy is supporting, America's role in defending factory farming worldwide, whether factory farming is efficient, whether we need to end capitalism to end factory farming, the psychological challenge of seeing the horror of factory farming in everyday life, undercover farm investigations, civil disobedience and violence in fighting for animal rights, the ethics of pursuing corporate campaigns, criticisms of Open Phil's approach to farmed animal welfare, and of course, how you can get involved. This conversation, like many that I have, is a little bit of a downer, and there are some gruesome descriptions of the conditions that farmed animals are raised in. Um, just a warning up front. But uh, I think there's not many people out there with a better insight into the whole spectrum of the animal welfare movement than Lewis. So I'm happy to bring you Lewis Bullard. Can you just lay out what Open Philanthropy is trying to do? Yeah. So in the um, factory farming area, um, really our goal is is to reduce um, the huge amount of suffering that's inflicted on huge numbers of animals globally. Um, and we, we don't take a strong position on how uh, that should be done. We're, we're kind of trying to work out what are the most effective ways to reduce that suffering. Uh, generally, those fall into the, the bucket either of reducing the number of animals being factory farmed and being slaughtered and consumed um, and reducing the suffering of each animal that is being factory farmed. Gotcha. And, and open philanthropy, this is not their only cause area, right? This is not. So open philanthropy as a whole, uh, it's a foundation that is seeking to do the most good across a number of cause areas. And I think kind of uniquely as uh, is sort of um, open to exploring very different cause areas, so long as they fit the criteria we identified, which are uh, importance or scale, tractability, and neglectedness of the cause. Yeah, yeah. And so that matches up with an effective altruism mindset as well, right? That's right. There's, there's a lot of overlap with effective altruism. I think we're a very EA-inspired uh, organization and tend to be involved with a lot of the same causes that effective altruists are excited about. Are there any important points of divergence between the two? I don't think there are necessarily points of divergence. I mean, I think that uh, there is no one ideology that's effective altruism. I think different effective altruists have really different approaches uh, and, and have different feelings about what the most important priorities are. And I'd say, if anything, I think um, perhaps one point of divergence would just be that I think we're really committed to worldview diversification and sort of having a number of different issues that we think are all potentially very important uh, on multiple different worldviews. Whereas I think for some effective altruists, they choose to just focus on, on one issue, which can make a lot more sense at an individual level. Uh, but at the foundation level, we're really trying to impact a number of issues. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, looking at the different cause areas that Open Philanthropy invests in, it reminds me of a diversified portfolio yeah. <laughs> uh, where it's like animal welfare, long-term future, land use reform, criminal justice reform, global poverty, and I can't even <laughs> name all the others, um, which makes sense, I guess, if you have like billions of dollars. But if you're an individual, it might be a lot to yeah, focus on. Yeah, I think it often makes sense for individuals to, to work out what's the one issue where you can have the greatest impact. 
Um, but I think for, for a foundation, particularly one as big as ours, it's really incumbent on us to see are there multiple issues that we could have that impact on, particularly when there are so few other large funders who are willing to invest in these areas. I mean, I think that's you know, a common thread across the areas is they tend to be very neglected by other funders. And so if we weren't there, there would be substantially less going on in the field. Yeah. So I guess, can we break down that uh, three you know, area framework that you just mentioned and then talk about why farmed animal welfare fits very nicely within it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the first piece is the importance or the scale, which is uh, how many individuals are affected by this phenomenon and how many individuals uh, could be affected by improving this or, 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 or doing something on the issue. And in the case of factory farming, we're talking about about 25 billion uh, land farm animals alive at any point in time, about 70 billion slaughtered a year. Uh, we're talking about another roughly 55 billion farmed fish alive at any point in time, perhaps 100 billion slaughtered a year. And then we're looking at wild fish uh, being caught in the orders of the trillions. We, we don't even have good measurements. So just huge numbers. And, and again, those are the numbers just alive at any point in time. So multiply that by every every year we go through. Cool. So that's scale. And then the next one is tractability. Yeah, that's right. So um, in terms of tractability, we were kind of unsure on this one when we first got into the space of, of farm animal welfare. But there's been some really uh, exciting work going on over the last couple of years. Firstly, in terms of campaigns, getting companies to adopt meaningful improvements in the conditions in factory farms. Um, secondly, in terms of alternatives to animal products, plant-based alternatives in particular, um, becoming a lot better and, uh, and, and assuming more market share. And then thirdly, internationally, we're just starting to see a lot more progress. China, India, Brazil, a whole lot of uh, companies in Brazil making major policy changes. The Indian High Court recently put in place a moratorium on battery gauges in India. Uh, so we're starting to see some pretty exciting you know, early steps, but, but initial signs of, of tractability globally. Cool, cool. And then the last one is neglectedness, right? Yes, the neglectedness one was kind of the, the easiest to show in this case. I mean, sadly, farm animals have, have never been a popular cause area. And so when we got into the space, there were, there were just very few other major funders involved in the space. And although there were a lot of talented people working on it, there was, there was just very little money for those people to, to do things. Yeah, I think I remember seeing infographics showing the number of farmed animals compared to animals used for fur, used for testing, used for basically every other thing. And it was like 99 plus percent were on farms. But if you look at the funding for nonprofits, um, disproportionately went to animal testing or fur or other like, popular causes. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the it's mainly driven by animal shelters. So there are over 10,000 local animal shelters and animal rescue groups that primarily serve dogs and cats in the United States. And mm. they get several billion dollars a year. Uh, then the farm animals, who, as you noted, are many times more numerous, uh, get just get far, far less. And e even amongst the big animal groups, they just tend to get a lot less attention than, than the more charismatic, uh, friendly animals do. Yeah, yeah. I think like my impression of animal rights groups on, through high school and early college was basically just PETA and like throwing fake blood on people wearing fur <laughs> and trying to prevent animals from being used for like cosmetics testing and, mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah, I think the uh, the cosmetics testing issue in particular got a lot of play in the 1980s, the 1990s, uh, early 2000s. And it's a little odd. I mean, the, the numbers are, are far less than the number of animals involved in, in factory farming. I think perhaps it's just it, it's so obviously frivolous, uh, whereas I think it can be harder yeah. for people to, to view uh, factory farming or, or at least meat consumption as, as frivolous. Yeah, I guess if you've seen meat as a necessary 
component of like human life, then it's like, well, you know, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Whereas <laughs> like makeup, fewer people would argue is essential to, to living. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's just, you know, talking to people about what they eat is always a very uncomfortable issue. And particularly in the case of cosmetics, the other thing that happened is just we very quickly got alternatives that were just as good as the cosmetics being tested on animals, but that weren't tested on them. So it was also just incredibly unnecessary. And I think as uh, we get plant-based substitutes to factory farm products that are better than them, uh, I think we'll start to see that that argument having more sway here too. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I guess I don't know that much about like what we need as people nutritionally, <laughs> but for much of human history, would you say that it's like fair to say that it's, it was right for people to consume some animal products? I imagine. I mean, I'm I'm uh, not a nutritionist and and not an archaeologist, so I I, I don't uh, I don't know. But you know, there have been throughout history some some famous uh, vegetarians. Uh, so I, you know, Pythagoras was allegedly a vegetarian. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci allegedly yeah. was. Uh, so you know, there were clearly some people who who managed to make that work. But uh, clearly, it's the case that for the vast majority of people, this was eating meat has always been a, a, a normal part of their existence. Yeah. Yeah. There's some quote that's like how unlucky we are to live in a time, you know, after it was, you already were aware of like the, how bad meat was to eat, mm -hmm. but you were not yet living in a future where there was like these great alternatives, lap grown meat, clean meat or whatever. Um, that was just as good as the original. So we're like in this transition phase where there's this awful thing happening in factory mm -hmm. farming, but we don't have like the best alternatives available yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that, um, that's, you know, something to be excited about for the next few decades is that the plant-based products have gotten dramatically better, even just in, in the last decade, uh, that I've, I've been consuming them. Um, we've, we've seen products get, uh, far better in terms of taste, texture, be actually believable that this could be a real real burger. So I think it's exciting to see what's to come there. And, and as you say, it's just going to uh, reduce the necessity of, of people consuming animal products. Yeah, the people I know who are long-term vegans or vegetarians have said that in the last five years in particular, it's gotten much easier with the you know meat alternatives, uh, egg and milk alternatives that are out there. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think... Um, Soy milk uh, back in the, the 90s used to be uh, this very kind of bland tasting item that was only appealing to people who, who had allergies and couldn't consume dairy. And today, yeah. uh, soy milk, almond milk, other plant-based dairy make up 15% of the U.S. milk market. And I think for many people, uh, it seemed to be a superior product to milk. So I think we've, we've come leaps and bounds even just in the space of 10, 15 years there. Yeah. And, and do you personally keep a vegan vegetarian diet? I do. Yeah. So I've been uh, vegan for the last 14 years now and vegetarian wow. for a little while before that. So yeah, <laughs> doing a long time. Yeah. What's your personal experience been? Do you eat, you know, things like Beyond Burgers that try and mimic the taste of meat? I do. Yeah. I find typically uh, vegetarians, vegans typically kind of go one way or the other. You know, I think there are a lot who are drawn more toward whole plant-based foods, toward uh, things that are less processed. And I, I do try and consume uh, a lot of, you know, fruits and vegetables and things. I think anyone should. Um, but, you know, personally, I always loved the taste of meat. I mean, I didn't give up uh, eating meat because yeah. I, I didn't like the taste of it. And uh, and so yeah. for me, it's it's great having these products like the Beyond Burger that allow me to still enjoy the experience of the meal as much, uh, but without causing the suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I could never relate to people who are like, oh, you know, giving up meat was easy, you know, other <laughs> things like taste really good. And I'm like, we have very different palates then because <laughs> it felt like a very large personal sacrifice when uh, I went pescatarian 18 months ago, mm -hmm. vegetarian six months ago. Um, 
and it is a lot easier. Beyond Burgers are great. I eat them, you know, two or three times a week. There's a lot of good alternatives out there, but especially when you're in a country that doesn't have great options, um, it's a little depressing to eat something that's like just, you know, a giant piece of broccoli or a salad or something. And that's like the only Yeah, option. exactly. No, I mean, and I think, I think you get a, you know, a broader challenge that we often assume everyone else is just like us. So if it was easy for us to, to go <laughs> vegan, then it must be easy for everyone else to go vegan. And, uh, you know, obviously that's not the case. And I think a really important, uh, thing for us to realize as activists is is that there are very real barriers for many people to to adopting you know the change we want them to adopt yeah yeah for sure um i mean i think personally i still consume a lot of dairy um yogurt cheese and ice cream and the alternatives for me just aren't nearly as good yeah um, totally. i think i'd eventually like to get get to that point but um it seems like a much harder hurdle to cross than giving up fish or giving up uh, meat. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's all a, all a continuum, you know I mean? There's, it, it's impossible to eliminate harm from your diet or for that matter, from your lifestyle generally. And yeah. so I think the goal instead is, is how much harm can you kind of eliminate practicably and, and reasonably. And, um, you know, I think the most important steps by far in terms of animal suffering uh, are giving up fish, chicken, eggs, uh, and, and so I think, you know, that that is the vast bulk of the suffering involved in the in the uh, meals that most of us consume. Yeah. So I guess like I was under the impression that the kind of order of operations was, you know, give up cows and pigs first because they're, you know, they are intelligent and can suffer more than, you know, chickens or fish and then move on to chickens and then move on to fish and then move on to like eggs or something like that. But I've actually read, you know, calories per hour of suffering it's kind of the opposite like smaller creatures have to suffer a lot more for your meal you know one chicken will be like a few meals versus one cow could be a thousand mm -hmm. um and so yeah could you just like speak to like what the ideal order of operations would be <laughs> if you wanted to like mitigate suffering you, you named a few things right there yeah and so you know i mean to be clear there are different considerations so from an environmental perspective, uh, people should not eat beef. I, I think it's pretty clear they have the have the worst environmental impact in terms of climate change. Um, but from an animal suffering perspective, as you say, it's, it's really small animals. It's both the fact that you have to consume far more of them uh, to, to get the same amount of meat. So it's about 200 to one in terms of 200 chickens to one cow uh, to get, get the same amount of meat. Wow. And, um, and, and it can be even more skewed for fish. With fish, you typically get even less meat from one, one animal. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that's one thing. But the second thing is actually that um, smaller animals tend to be treated worse in factory farming. And um, that that's largely because they tend not to be ruminants. They're never ruminants. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's far easier to raise uh, chickens in a cage uh, than it would be to try raising a cow in a cage. Um, and uh, so, yeah. so the, conditions, the conditions tend to be the worst. I mean, the one exception on the big animal side is, is pigs have it really bad too. Uh, again, kind of cursed by not, yeah. not being ruminants. Um, but uh, generally, I think, yeah, generally that, that holds true. And so what is a ruminant? Yeah, sorry, ruminant's uh, an animal that uh, consumes grass. Uh, so, you know, that can graze. So particularly sheep, uh, cattle, water buffaloes in South Asia, goats, uh, you know, all of them uh, are kind of the animals that have, have been least factory farmed. Now, to be clear, in the U.S., there definitely are dairy factory farms. There are feedlots for the end of beef cattle's lives. Uh, so there is factory farming of ruminants, but it's it's just progressed uh, less far along than it has for other animals. Gotcha. And I, I've seen claims that you know people have tried to rate the well-being of a animal life in a typical factory farm from like negative ten to ten. <laughs> and off the top of my head, I think the range was like most were negative lives. Yeah. Um, 
but the most positive one was cows raised for beef, uh, for steaks and whatnot. Do you put any stock in that, um, you know, ordinal ranking or the absolute value either? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a good thing to think about. Obviously, it's a really tough um, judgment to make where each animal comes down in terms of numbers on there. And um, I think that reasonable, smart people will disagree on uh, the ranking and they'll certainly disagree on on to what degree uh, do the animals have net negative lives or could they have positive lives. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think it certainly seems true to me that of all the animals that we consume in large numbers in the United States, beef cattle have it the least bad. Uh, and that's because for most of their life, most of them are still raised on the range. Uh, now they mm-hmm. still have problems if they're a male, they're going to get castrated without pain relief. Um, they may still in some cases get branded. Uh, they're going to typically suffer pretty long uh, transportation. And then they'll spend the last few months of their life in a feedlot, which is a pretty grim place. Um, but again, you know, it's all it's all relative. And so just comparing that to the life of a factory farm chicken, uh, really, you know, it, I think still is, is the least bad. Yeah, yeah. And, and so to some people, this conversation might sound like barbaric, right? Because <laughs> some people think that, you know, animals are not really morally distinct from people mm-hmm. or non-human animals are not morally distinct from people and their capacity of suffering. And so like ranking the ones from like least bad lives to, to you know, worse lives just seems like totally inhumane to even consider. Um, could you like make the case for why this might matter and why we should think about things this way? Or, you know, you might not personally agree with yeah, that. I mean, but... I, I think we're in a triage situation. I mean, we've, we've got this global catastrophe of a huge amount of suffering, far beyond the ability of any one of us to, to end. And I think confronted by, with that, it's, it's kind of incumbent upon us to, to prioritize. Now, you know, for those of us yep. who um, feel we can, you, you can go vegan, you know, and, and certainly I think that's the way to kind of eliminate a lot of this harm. Um, but other people are going to find, you know, different places along the spectrum where it, it, it works for them and where it's feasible. And I think, too, when we look at things like where should we target for welfare reforms, where should we target for policy change, uh, we owe it to the animals to to be targeting the things that are going to affect the greatest number and affect them the most. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that makes sense. I mean, ultimately, everything is triage. Um, right. You know, humanitarian interventions abroad, ending wars, ending genocides. It's always a triage situation uh, because there's more suffering than we really know what to do with. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's like a pretty universal principle. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic uh, to people who have trouble applying that principle. I mean, for instance, we have a rescue dog from the South Korean dog meat trade. Now, mm. you know, the amount of resources we've put into caring for her are vastly beyond uh, what any one individual in the world should receive for our attention and affection. And, and clearly that's, that's more something we're doing kind of based on our personal commitment and based on our personal compassion. And so I completely understand people who, you know, that's what brings you into this movement. That's what gets you going. Uh, and, and you have to, you know, honor that, that motivation. I think, but at the same time, where effective altruism comes in is it says, you know, what is the most good we can do? So where we, where we are thinking about this and trying to maximize our impact, how, how can we affect the most? Yeah. Yeah. I think you can, you can come up with some creative excuses for why <laughs> worth having. Um, yeah. one of my friends has a beautiful pet dog and, uh, we also host effective altruism events at his house and his dog brings so much joy to people and, uh, might, might help convince <laughs> them to care more about animals. And like, you could come up with some convoluted way to explain why Kyoto is actually like, living a net positive life for, for all the animals out there. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I've heard uh, dogs described as utility monsters. Oh, they totally are. They are <laughs> so, seem so happy all the time. So maybe maybe the best thing we could do is uh, care for and love for a lot of dogs. Yeah, yeah. This is a dog that gets fed omelets, which is uh, definitely a utility monster <laughs> move. <laughs> Um, cool. So I guess like we've touched on this a little bit, um, but you know, what role do you think personal diet change should play in the life of an animal activist? Um, do you think that somebody working full-time in this issue has an obligation to be a vegan? Um, do you think that there are people who would have been great allies for the cause who have been alienated by it because they weren't willing to make that change themselves? Yeah, I think we should accept people at where they're at. So, you know, there are, there are many great deeply committed activists who are vegan. And I think one argument in favor of, of vegan advocacy is that it does tend to produce some very deeply committed activists. So oftentimes, once someone's made this kind of huge in, inchoing commitment of, of changing their diet dramatically, they then seem ready to take the next commitment of becoming an activist and, and taking a lot of steps. But I've also known some great activists who are not vegetarian or vegan. And I think, um, particularly, as you say, when it comes to potential movement allies, um, I, I think we really shoot ourselves in the foot if we say mm -hmm. we don't want to work with environmentalists or we don't want to work with ranchers or we don't want to work with whoever if they're not, you know, if they don't agree with us on everything or if they don't do things exactly the same as we do. I mean, I think that for this movement to succeed, it needs to be diverse. And that is going to mean that we're going to have to embrace people who don't agree with us on everything and don't do things the way as we do, including on diet, on everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see a similar failure mode within environmentalism where... Mm -hmm. There's been this really strong focus on like turning your lights off and you know <laughs> not leaving your laptop plugged in overnight and right. you know these things do almost nothing compared to like running your car for like a minute right. um, or you know lobbying for policy changes to require buildings mm -hmm. to be more yeah. you know sustainably uh, operated and you know the leftist kind of analysis of this is like it's a very neoliberal move <laughs> right to like focus on like you as a consumer as like the ultimate you know end unit um, in society. There's no like social group. There's no, you know, movement politics. Um, and you know, I think this has been like really limiting. And uh, I was reading a little bit about direct action everywhere uh, in preparation for this, and it seems like they're actually taking a very kind of like opposite approach, where you know they don't pr personally push people to go vegan or vegetarian. They're, they're arguing more for like policy changes, system change. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that approach? Kind of like at the expense of lobbying for personal diet changes. Yeah, I mean, I, I generally think it makes a lot more sense to focus on policies, uh, whether they're governmental policies, corporate policies, uh, just the scale involved is so much greater. And, you know, it's funny um, you mentioning the kind of silliness of, of focusing on individual personal change and how it is kind of a, a neoliberal idea. And it's something actually the industry loves to use as a talking point whenever we push for, you know, a stronger regulation to protect animals. They'll say, well, you know, we have niche producers who are producing animals under higher welfare standards. And if consumers want that, they can just pay for that. They can just buy their product. Yeah. You know? And it's this, uh, it's this little the free market. It's, the free market. it's, a, it's a libertarian paradise. Um, you know, of course, I mean, it doesn't even work on their own grounds because there is another party suffering here. It's not about, uh, it's, it's, it's not about you know, these laws are not about protecting consumers from themselves. They're about protecting animals uh, from, from uh, the harm that will be inflicted on them. So I completely agree. I mean, I think that when we, when we make this all about individual changes uh we play on the terrain of our opponents and we uh play at a very small scale 
And so to really to really make change, I, I think it all has to be, yeah, at a more systemic chat scale. Uh, and that can still be, you know, that can still be a small scale. That can still start as a city. That can still start as a state. Um, but wherever we can, looking for what's the biggest scale we can get with the change, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in New York, there's been, and I think in San Francisco as well, some changes to, you know, city policy to not allow, you know, fur coats to be sold or new fur coats to be sold. Um, and so going back to our earlier conversation around like the relative number of animals in each thing, it's like, well, fur isn't really the problem, but do you see that as a kind of foot in the door of like getting smaller reforms through to like build the muscle and, and get legislators kind of like on your side before pushing through, you know, bigger things like, you know, mandating that all eggs sold in the city are cage free or something to that effect. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if um, it will be a foot in the door in the sense that the, the you know proves to make it easier to get the next step. But I think it's good on its own grounds. I mean, I think um, you know the fur trade is is one of the cruelest trades in the world, and so even if it doesn't compare with the insane scale of factory farming, we're still talking about perhaps a hundred million animals a year uh, kept in absolutely abysmal conditions. And so I definitely view it as a positive, both in terms of direct impacts, but also in terms of the symbolic importance of, of saying this is something that society will no longer tolerate. Um, so, yeah, I, I view that as a positive. I mean, I would say I think that traditionally um, when we've achieved changes for companion animals or others, it hasn't necessarily trickled down to farm animals in the way people might hope. And so I'm not sure this necessarily will, but I think it's good, good on its own merits. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, and in looking at the history of social movements, you know, anti-slavery pushed for kind of like reformist welfare, improving things like ending like chattel slavery or ending the trade itself before actually like ending the ownership of human beings, which obviously is like the only acceptable outcome right? <laughs> right. ultimately. But like you have to push for things that are achievable in the moment and then kind of like build build on that momentum. Yeah. And it's at least a welfare gain in the time being. Right, that's right. And I think, I mean, I think all change has to be incremental. I mean, I think, you know, you could you could take the example of, of slavery. And even after we abolished slavery, uh, we were so far short of where we needed to be. Uh, and so, you know, it required the civil rights movement. It required all these additional steps uh, to, to reach a better outcome. And I think that, unfortunately, is the case with anything. We're never going to see an overnight change that just gets rid of the problem. It's always going to come in a number of smaller steps. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, like, can you t take us through what Open Philanthropy has been funding specifically uh, why those campaigns and, and what the future looks like? Sure. Yeah. So the uh, biggest thing we've funded have been campaigns to hold companies accountable for the treatment of animals in their supply chain. So in particular, uh, looking at the use of battery cages, which are one of the cruelest devices uh, invented and, and getting companies to commit to phasing out those cages, starting in the United States, then in Europe, uh, then for Latin America, and now increasingly seeking global pledges. Um, we've moved on from there to working as well on broiler chicken welfare. Broiler chickens uh, raised for meat are different from, from layer hens uh, and uh, seeking to improve their conditions and in particular uh, their genetics because they've been bred in, in such a horrific way that they are, are born to suffer. They, they suffer inherently in, in their bodies. Uh, we've been focusing increasingly on fish welfare. Uh, I mentioned there are at least 55 billion fish alive, uh, just farmed fish alive at any point in time. Uh, again, often, often kept in, in very poor conditions and almost always uh, slaughtered uh, without any stunning, uh, which is one of the more, most horrific things I've, I've seen in person. Uh, and so seeking there first to, to get 
uh, humane stunning introduced, but also to seek to, to build up incremental welfare reforms. Um, two other kind of major focuses we've had. One has been building the movement in parts of the world where there are a lot of animals, but there historically hasn't been much funding for advocacy. So looking at places like China, India, Southeast Asia, um, and it's been exciting to find there are a lot of advocates in those places who are passionate about these issues, want to work on them, but just have never had the funding to do so. Uh, and then the other thing is, has been supporting um, alternatives to animal products. Mm-hmm. And so supporting, in particular, um, plant-based approaches that can produce uh, alternatives that, that reduce the demand for factory farm products. Gotcha. And so I think uh, when you had a conversation with uh, Rob Woodland from 80,000 Hours uh, a few years back, you're focusing on corporate campaigns. Um, what progress has been made like in the years since then? Yeah, so we've, we've seen a bunch of progress since then. I mean, I think the biggest one has been extending the campaigns beyond the U.S. So I think at that time, uh, all the major U.S. food companies had committed to getting rid of cages, and we'd started to see progress in Europe. That progress has increased in Europe. So we've, we've seen all the major Spanish retailers, uh, most of the major Italian retailers, uh, most of the major British retailers all make similar commitments. Um, the other exciting thing that's happened is we've, we've expanded geographically to parts of the world where historically there hadn't really been any progress on these issues. So we've seen uh, in Taiwan, Carrefour, one of the biggest supermarket chains, pledging to, to get rid of cages. Uh, Walmart Brazil, uh, third biggest retailer there, pledging to get rid of cages across Brazil. Um, and we're now starting to see global policies. So we're seeing um, companies like Hilton most recently, um, Hyatt, uh, Starbucks, making global commitments to getting rid of cages across their supply chain. And and I think that's particularly exciting because multinational companies um, are both responsible for uh, a huge amount of of the exporting factory farming, but also have the potential to to reduce it substantially. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. So these companies are so worldwide that if they make a policy change, they can kind of move the market just through their sheer size and omnipresence. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's only, a few decades ago that, that American and European agribusiness companies brought factory farming to the rest of the world as a system. And, mm. and you know, oftentimes at the request of fast food chains, uh, retailers from the West who wanted to, to open shop in other countries and, and have the efficiencies that factory farming had brought them in the West. Um, and so I think it's there's, there's a little justice perhaps now if these companies are, are you know coming back and, and requiring reforms to, to mitigate some of the harms that they contributed to creating. Uh, it's like kind of a parallel to the war on drugs, which the United States, you know, developed domestically to control minority populations and then exported in the fifties and sixties using their massive international power and threatening embargoes and, and other international sanctions against countries that wouldn't adopt draconian drug policies. So, and now we're kind of undoing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Southeast Asia is like still has, you know, death penalty for drug right. smugglers. And yeah, it's, 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 it's crazy. I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, one other thing that I think no one really knows is that the U.S. government still actively advocates at international organizations in favor of factory farming practices and against reforms. Uh, so most recently, the World Animal Health Organization, uh, which is kind of premier global international organization uh, with respect to animal health and animal welfare, was going to pass a new code of welfare for layer hands. And that was going to note the cruelty of battery cages and recommend against caging animals. And the United States led the opposition to that, mm-hmm. uh, along with a, a number of, of other countries that, that like using cages. So it's still very much the case that mm-hmm. the, the U.S. government 
is actively advocating, and, and this was true both in this administration and true under the Obama administration, actively advocating uh, on behalf of factory farming interests uh, at, at the highest level globally. Wow. So is this a case of regulatory capture where the industry is just so thoroughly captured, the government agency is responsible for regulating it, that they kind of are just a mouthpiece for that industry's interests? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. I mean, for the most part, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has authority over these matters, and they have an inherently conflicted mandate. They're, they're there to promote U.S. agriculture and to regulate U.S. agriculture. And at least in the animal egg space, they've done a lot more promotion than regulation. And I think, uh, you know, in that mm-hmm. sense, it's just them kind of doing what they've always done, what, uh, what, what industry has always encouraged them to do. The other thing you'll see is, is a huge revolving door there. So if you look at who is staffing the high levels of these agencies, you see a lot of people who, who come from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the National Pork Producers Council. You know, unsurprisingly, these these people think the right policies are the ones that are, are right for factory farmers. Yeah. And, and so is the argument something like if the United States adopts cage-free practices or some other welfare reform, make us not competitive on international markets and like American businesses will lose out? Yeah, I think that's, that's probably at the heart of it. I mean, I think there's also oftentimes just a, a cultural factor where... You know, factory farmers have had to convince themselves that the practices they're using are good, that, that it's a positive good. And mm-hmm. so I think it's, it's oftentimes the case that if factory farmers uh, go into government or if the people in government are friends with factory farmers and, and socialize in those circles, they also get convinced that factory farming is a positive good. Um, so, yes, I think they're yeah. thinking about the economic consequences as well. But, but I wouldn't underestimate the degree to which uh, people in these positions really do believe that uh, factory farming practices are, are good for the world. And could you do you have any insight into what they're thinking? <laughs> you know how they're justifying. <laughs> like, you know, if you dropped a person, a random person on the floor, uh, a killing floor of a uh, slaughterhouse, mm. they would probably start like sobbing uncontrollably mm. yeah. at, at what they're seeing. So, like, how do you get to the place where you're defending that not just as necessary but like a good thing? Yeah, I mean, I think um, factory farming gradually developed over time. So it, it sort of, no one ever woke up one morning and decided we should lock up all the animals, cut off parts of their body, slaughter them inhumanely and, and you know, create food that way. It, it was a gradual process. And it was a gradual process driven by what's efficient. So I think for a lot of these people that say like, look, we, we've uh, pr- managed to produce dramatically more meat uh, than we ever did previously. We've managed to reduce the price of that meat. Uh, we've created the most efficient animal agriculture system you've ever seen. Um, and, and I think they genuinely believe that. I think a lot of them uh, genuinely believe they're feeding the world and that they're, they're serving the imperative of, of yeah. getting food uh, to the world. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you ignore the well-being of the animals involved, um, there seems to be something to that, right? Like you are, meat is cheaper than it's probably ever been Um and it's kept that way because these practices are able to jam more bodies in smaller spaces and, and get them in and out faster uh, onto people's plates. But I mean, do you think that's actually fair? I know there's like a lot of risks that come with factory farming that also hurt people. Well, yeah. I and mean, I think you'd need to ignore not just the animals, but also the local ecosystems uh, that, that suffer the water or air pollution around factory farms. You need to ignore mm-hmm. the plight of workers, uh, particularly in slaughterhouse conditions, uh, where they have very high rates of injury. Uh, you'd need to uh, ignore the potential of um, pandemics uh, stemming out of these places where they're yeah. using 
antibiotics on a huge scale uh, and, and doing very little contained diseases. So there are a whole lot of factors you need to ignore. But if, if you are purely looking at, you know, is this the financially uh, most efficient way, so long as we're not required to, to pay the cost of all those externalities, uh, is this the, the most efficient way to raise uh, animals and create meat? I think it is. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and some on the left think that, you know, factory farming is just a natural outgrowth of capitalism mm-hmm. and that you can't really make animals' lives better without ending capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on that argument? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think all change is gradual. And I think that uh, if you decide that the problem is as immense as capitalism and that no change can be made unless you destroy the whole problem, I, I think that you're condemning yourself to, uh, to never making any change. So uh, mm-hmm. I think that whether capitalism contributes to factory farming or not, and that clearly it contributes at some level, uh, it, it doesn't change in my mind the question of what are the feasible things we can do to mitigate the harms of factory farming, to reduce the scale of factory farming, uh, to improve a lot of animals. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think it's possible to have capitalism and animals that are well looked after and socialism and animals that are treated terribly. Um, I mean, if you get to the place where meat alternatives are just as tasty and like half the cost, then the profit motive will actually lead you to uh, developing those at the expense of farming animals. And if you develop a socialist government where animals just aren't considered to be one of the meaningful stakeholders, then you could easily see them just being slaughtered as usual, maybe with better working conditions for people. But, you know, still their well-being isn't considered. So it just kind of continues to happen. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the Soviet Union had factory farming and Soviet factory farms, as far as I can tell, look basically the same as American factory farms at that time did. Uh, and and I think equally, there are uh, capitalist Western European societies that have meaningfully regulated animal agriculture and dramatically reduce the harm of factory farming. You look at somewhere like Switzerland, which is a very rich country, uh, you know, has a capitalist system in place, uh, but has dramatically reduced uh, the extent to which factory farming practices are permissible. And then, as you say, with a new generation of, of products and a new generation of companies, um, I think capitalism is exactly what's what's going to support uh, the proliferation of those those products, so long as they can compete on, on price and, and quality. Yeah. Yeah, I should be clear that there are plenty of other good arguments against capitalism in favor of socialism. <laughs> but I think if you're putting your eggs in this basket, um, you should look at like the actual causal effect of ending one or replacing it with another. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that um, you know my my perspective is I just look at the factory farming issue, and so I you know I, I yeah. don't look across the range of other issues, and and partly that's intentional because I think clearly there are other major problems in, in society. Um, and I'm really glad there are people working on those issues and, and trying to achieve other forms of change. Um, but I think it's hard when you define the problem as everything and say that you know nothing mm-hmm. short of changing everything will, will count as real change. Uh, then I think you put yourself in a, in a really tough position. And so I think we're normally better off focusing on on a problem we can deeply understand than seeking to, to reduce the harm caused by that. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I appreciate that OpenFill has these like very clear principles and, and metrics by which they're judging their work that are still really, really ambitious. Um, you know, for farmed animal welfare, it's like drastically reducing the number in the order of millions or hundreds of millions of animals uh, and the amount they suffer, you know, ending mass incarceration. Like these are really bold, ambitious goals. So I think people hear incrementalism and might get scared away, especially on the left. And they go like, Oh, like, you know, he's a centrist or, or whatever, but like, it's more of just like recognizing 
that's how change has come about historically. Yeah. And, and it doesn't um, preclude different ways of seeking change, right? So I think that there are some people who are inherently more comfortable uh, with very activist forms of seeking change and more grassroots approaches to seeking change. And there are other people who want to work within the system and, and want to achieve things in, in very small increments. And I think uh, both of the, we need, we need both of those. We need, and we need everything in between, you know, we need those range of approaches. And so for people who feel kind of very uncomfortable at the idea of incremental change, I'd say, you know, you, you don't need to be on the inside of the system. You don't need to be achieving things in tiny bits, but I would still think about how can you support the goals of the movement as a whole uh, in the way that, that feels right to you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this is something that for the people who really care about it, um, it's just the worst thing that's happening in the world. Um, I think it's just, just a sheer scale. Unless you really, really discount the lives of animals relative to people, this is the the worst thing that's happening on an ongoing basis. Um, yet, most people just don't really seem to care about it, or at least they're not acting like they do. Um, and, and do you personally struggle with that, like psychologically, you know, going about your day and just seeing, you know, the product of like torture and murder, you know, just being everybody's plates, you know, at work or on the street or, you know, wherever you are, does, does that get to you at a personal level? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's, it's tough. I think, um, you know, I visited, uh, some factory farms in India two years ago and, mm -hmm. you know, saw kind of upfront exactly how all these animals uh, are being treated. And, um, honestly, the, uh, <laughs> in many ways, it's, it's sort of less shocking how the farm is treating them than it is that, that no one's saying anything about it. I mean, it's, it's natural for those farmers to find the most efficient way uh, they can raise these animals and, 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 you know, if that involves torturing them, not to care a lot about that. Uh, but it, it does seem crazy that as a society, uh, this isn't a more important issue. This isn't something that we, we think about a lot. So yeah, I mean, that, that is tough psychologically. I think, uh, I think it's tough for a lot of people in this movement, uh, feeling like we're still, uh, you know, still a small portion of society growing, I think, but that's still small. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, um, I, I think the way that I try to think more positively about it is reframing it as an opportunity. I mean, we have people already on our side in some sense, when you poll people and ask them, what do you think about these practices? Almost uniformly people are, are against them. I mean, people say, no, you shouldn't keep the pig in the crate. That's, that's crazy. And, I think the yeah. fact that that's people's reaction, even if people are not acting on that, even if it's not a salient issue to them yet, I think that does put us in a really good starting position for achieving social change. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of that attributed to these undercover videos that are taken of conditions in, in factory farms and then people. I think everybody is more or less aware that factory farming is a thing and that it's really, really mm -hmm. bad. Um, can you just speak to like how those videos got made and, and, and what impact do you think that they've had? Yeah, I think they've had a huge impact. So, you know, undercover investigations within the factory farming space have uh, been around since roughly the 1990s, um, have definitely intensified in the last 10 years or so. And the basic premise is, is that uh, someone who either works for an animal organization or, or volunteers separately as a, as a whistleblower uh, goes to work in a factory farm uh, or a slaughterhouse and secretly films what they see and, and then once they're uh once they've filmed that for a number of months enough to show that there's a pattern of conduct there's repeated cruelty uh they typically send that to prosecutors uh, prosecutors typically do nothing with it uh, then they typically also mm -hmm. release it to the media and i think that's where it's had a really major impact in terms of of change um so yeah i think that undercover investigations have 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 been absolutely critical to get into the place we are because 
factory farms otherwise provide no way for people to see what's going on inside of them. I mean, that's, that's by design. And I think without the insight these investigations provide, we would be truly in the dark about what's happening to animals. Yeah. And, and these investigators are exposing themselves to a lot of personal legal risk, right? Yeah, they are. And, and particularly uh, now, a number of states have, have passed uh, ag-gag laws, which are laws designed to criminalize undercover investigations and whistleblowing. Specifically, So that's ag-gag? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, I, mean, I think it's, um, it, it is an inherently dangerous thing for an investigator to do. Uh, particularly, you know, one, one thing I always find really ironic is after these videos come out, um, invariably the farm owners or someone else in animal agriculture will attack the investigators and say, well, you know, if you saw this abuse going on, why didn't you report it? As if it's, you know, on us yes. as an animal community to, to be policing their facilities. And the answer is they do report it. And in the past, they used to report it more regularly. But what started happening was that if you report animal cruelty on a farm, they know you're an undercover investigator and they fire you because no regular yeah. employee would ever report the cruelty going on. It's just so routine and, and it's so clear that you're not meant to complain yeah. about it. Yeah. I mean, could you just describe like an example of, of the type of cruelty that, that we're talking about? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the, the worst kind is, is just the most routine and systemic, which is keeping animals in cages and crates uh, that are so small they can barely move. I mean, they, they jam on egg farms, they jam four to six birds into a cage the size of a microwave. And they don't leave that cage for a year to two years. Uh, on pig farms, they put gestating sows, uh, mother pigs, uh, into crates the size of a coffin. And uh, the only time they leave those crates is to get moved into a slightly larger crate for them to give birth and then to be put back in that crate. And that continues on and on for three years. Um, you, you look at, um, you know, I mean, some of the other things these videos find are truly grotesque. Like I saw one uh, yesterday that came out of one of the biggest egg farms in Australia where the workers who were charged with killing the uh, layer hens at the end of their cycle because, you know, once, they, once their productivity in laying eggs decreases, the farm kills them. Uh, the workers were charged with doing that were doing it by ripping off the heads of some of the birds and were making jokes about it. And, you know, the, the thing that's sad is nothing unexpected about that. I mean, basically, every time these investigations are done, and, and oftentimes they just choose a farm at random. It's not like they've gotten a tip-off that this cruelty at this one farm. They just walk into a farm. And so we're only seeing, you know, one of the 15,000 factory farms in America and just at one point in time, just for a few months, and yet, almost invariably, we see something new, sick and depraved. We see farmers burying birds alive. We see farmers throwing birds like they were footballs. You know, we just see treatment of animals that people would be sickened by. And I think it's, it's natural in that it's an outgrowth of a system that has zero concern for animals. Uh, and so I think it's not surprising we see these, yeah. these kind of abuses. Yeah, I mean... And to anyone who's shocked by this, uh, I would just encourage you to spend any time reading about any genocide that's happened mm -hmm. throughout history and how common the treatment is. It's just like devaluing the lives of things that can experience suffering um, to the point where they're just an object of your own cruelty and pleasure. And, you know, the stories of like the rape of Nanking or the Holocaust mm -hmm. or, you know, Cambodia or Timor Leste or whatever. It's just like the same kind of thing occurring over and over again. 
And we say, we say never again, but like this is happening. And it's like a fraught comparison, of course, because, you know, people are different from animals and their capacity to suffer and, and need different things. Um, and there is something uniquely, I think, horrible about uh, doing that to a member of your own species who is capable of like profound levels of suffering that we are just so aware of. The, the sheer scale and routineness of, of all of this is like really should disturb us and, and cause us to change change the way we, we behave. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's just a, a psychological numbing that goes on. I mean, I, uh, in my previous job, one thing I did was watch the outtakes of some undercover investigations uh, so that we could try and identify legal violations that we could make complaints about. And I remember watching the outtakes of one at a calf slaughterhouse in New Jersey. And in this particular case, they were taking minutes to kill some of these calves. They were slowly dying. Uh, and, and, you know, worth noting, if you look online, you won't find this footage because the footage is far too gruesome to go on YouTube. So, you know, the investigation clips you find on YouTube or on Facebook are actually a lot less bad than the worst thing because all the worst things uh, don't fit with the content policies. Um, but the, uh, but you know, the, the other thing I was going to say on that is just that you see these, these workers there who clearly they, they see this every day. They're probably not being paid very well. They're probably overworked and they've just become completely numb to it. And so, you know, more often than not, it's not that they're actively being cruel. It's just that they're completely indifferent to regular suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny because this is a result of like a thing that makes humans very adaptable. Um, you know, we, you can survey people, you know, one year and they're healthy and the next year they've lost like two of their legs and, their levels of happiness are like more or less the same. Um, and the same is true for people who like win the lottery. Um, and it's sometimes called hedonic adaptation. Um, and we can just get used to almost any condition, which makes us able to live in every part of the world and, you know, go through like severe hardships and, and still keep going. Um, but it can also allow us to just be indifferent to of suffering that would appall you if you came across it, you know, for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think you see that again and again, that what is outrageous in, in regular life has just become normal and accepted on these farms. I mean, if, if, you know, your neighbor got a uh, piglet and uh, said, you know, do you want to come over tomorrow? I'm going to be castrating the piglet. And you showed up and he just had a pair of pliers <laughs> And, uh, you know, no pain relief and the piglet starts screaming and he used the pliers to just to, to clip him. I think you'd be shocked. You'd be outraged. I mean, I think the average person would probably call the police and, and try and get like a, a cruel prosecution. Yeah. And yet that's what they do for all of the male piglets on almost every factory farm globally. It's just become so normal that it's, yeah. it's become accepted. Yeah. Yeah, there's a scene from the show Parks and Recreation where um, Ron Swanson, like this big manly man who loves meat, um, is organizing a barbecue and he brings the pig to the barbecue and <laughs> everyone's excited to meet the pig and he's like, all right, th this is what we'll be eating later. And everyone's like horrified, right? Um, <laughs> so he has to like, take the pig away and you know, the next day he brings in barbecue and it's the pig and everyone's like, oh, like, it smells so good. I'm going to eat anyway. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the show is very funny, but like, I was just so disturbed by the <laughs> that sequence of scenes because I don't really know like what the humor is coming from there. Mm -hmm. Is it like the, the sheer absurdity of like what we are doing? But it seems to condone it at the end of like, oh yeah, it's a totally normal mm -hmm. thing. You know, it smells so good. I can't resist. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a clip. I, I want to say it's uh, maybe from Brazil of a, um, a, a prank uh, sort of food stand that was set up at a food fair. Uh, where they're, they're selling sausages. And um, mm -hmm. when people come over to get their pork sausages, 
uh, they say, you know, just a minute, it's completely farm fresh. We're going to make it on the spot. And so then they pull out of the stand a pickle and like, you know, pick up a knife oh, and obviously God. they don't actually kill them or harm them in any way. But it's fascinating to see people are just shocked, outraged, terrified. I mean, people, you know, scream, are like telling them, please, please don't kill the pig. Uh, and so, you know, it just shows the, the degree of, of cognitive dissonance we've reached uh, that so long as it's done out of sight, and as long as it's done by, by someone we didn't directly ask to do it, uh, we're, we're fine with participating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, out of sight, out of mind is, is an enormous mm-hmm. part of this. Um, I mean, there's a reason in the United States why so many prisons are built far from urban centers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you need to isolate people from the ones who would see the conditions that they're living in. And uh, a few months back in, in the dead of winter, one of the jails in Brooklyn had their heat and, and power go out. And, you know, because it was in Brooklyn, hundreds of people showed up, protested, led to serious change and, um, you know, some punishment for the people responsible. But if that happened, you know, a few hundred miles north in Auburn, New York, mm-hmm. it's just not an option really to go and, and do something about it. Yeah. I mean, it, it reminds me of uh, a very routine uh, atrocity that occurs at factory farms, which is uh, when factory farms burned out and, mm. you know, the way factory farms are built, they lobbied so that, under fire codes, they wouldn't need to put in sprinkler systems. They wouldn't need to put in alarms. Wouldn't need to put in all these things that would cost money, but you know potentially protect the animals. Because it, it turns out it's cheaper to just buy an insurance policy, and when the farm burns down, to just replace the animals. And so these these yeah. farm fires happen every year. I mean, millions of animals burn to death every year in the United States. Standard farms, and uh, it's, it's not even reported. I mean, occasionally you'll see a local news story because oftentimes. Uh, these prove hazardous to the firefighters when they arrive. Uh, but it's it's just yeah. given as, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with allowing 2 million animals to, to burn to death uh, because it was cheaper to have the insurance policy and, and no one's going to see anything about it or hear anything about it. Jeez. Uh, yeah, I'm reminded of one of the hurricanes that hit uh, one of the Carolinas mm-hmm. and like there were animals just abandoned in the farms and people tried to rescue them and they were going to face... Um, serious legal tr- charges if they, you know, went and released animals that were just going to drown in their yeah. cages. Yeah. Um, did you follow that story at all? Yeah, so I, I heard about the um, potential prosecution, but I mean, there was a yeah when I forget which hurricane it was, but in in the Carolinas and in, in Georgia, I think uh, many many chicken farmers and pig farmers uh, left their animals in the barns. I mean, they they locked the doors and and they just left. And uh, we know that at least. Six million animals drowned, and I say at least because the six million were the ones that crazily animal ag companies reported themselves, uh, and mm. uh, they pretty quickly after they saw the reaction stopped reporting numbers. Um, there was also a, a notorious thing where one of these, I think, it might have been Sanderson Farms, uh, which had you know just owned up to at least two million chickens being drowned to death. They said thankfully. Uh, no one uh, was harmed by the uh, by the hurricanes, uh, so you know it just gives you a sense really of uh, of of who they consider worthy of, of any attention. Yeah, you see this too when you know somebody writes a New York Times op-ed about the five thousand people that died in the war in Iraq, mm-hmm. referring to yeah. the American service members and not the half a million Iraqis, of course, because mm-hmm. like why mention them? Yeah, no, I mean I think there's a, <sighs> I think there's a really. Uh, <laughs> crazy division in the way that people uh, treat, you know, not just between humans and animals, but I think what's really bizarre is between animals who we're raising for meat and animals we're not. I mean, in a lot yeah. of states, if you had a pet pig, if you did to them any of the things that are totally routine on factory farms, you could face a felony prosecution. I mean, you could go to jail for several years uh, for, yeah. for mistreating your pet pig. Uh, 
But if you instead were to say, hey, I'm a farm and uh, this is this is just a regular farming practice, totally legal. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, there's like this common thread of um, if you like kill one person, you're a murderer. If you kill a million, you're a war hero or you know, a president <laughs> or whatever. Um, and if you just scale something enough and create institutions around it and and the cultures and, and power structures that exist to protect those institutions, you can get away with literally anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a, a great uh, quote from Ruth Harrison, who was she actually sort of a, a, a little known precursor to, to Peter Singer. It was Peter Singer read Ruth Harrison's writings on factory farming and in particular animal machines from the 1960s. Uh, and mm. I'm going to butcher the quote, but but basically saying that you know if you take one animal and, and instead uh, increase it to millions of animals, and if you add a profit incentive in. Um, otherwise, smart, caring individuals uh, will will cease to care, uh, and I think it's I think it's yeah. so true. Yeah, yeah, and and so on the North Carolina hurricane, there, there were animal sanctuaries that were ready to rescue those animals and, and take them. I believe um, who would otherwise have just been killed at no gain to the farmers, and, and they were I think prevented from doing so, or at least threatened with serious legal consequences. But can you just describe some of these rescues and and what happens to the animals when when they go get rescued? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the, the sad thing is no sanctuary is ever going to have the capacity to, to house even a tiny fraction of these animals. I mean, yeah. you know, to, to imagine millions of animals is, is just insane. Uh, yeah. But, you know, one, uh, one more upbeat story I can tell you on this was Iowa a few years ago um, had similar flooding. And the, um, a few farms there did open their barn doors. So, you know, they didn't actually... Mm. <laughs> rescued the animals, but they opened the barn doors and at least gave them like some fighting chance at, at getting away. And yeah. uh, as a result of that, some pigs managed to swim up onto the levees. Uh, and so a number of pigs, farm sanctuary went out there and, and rescued a number of these pigs. And uh, we actually got uh, two years ago, three years ago, uh, a chance to go and visit some of them. So, so six of them now live at a, a little sanctuary just outside of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. Uh, and the thing was actually amazing. I mean, these are these were female, these were sows who had been uh, kept in crates their entire life, uh, and yet they were really friendly animals. Uh, they loved drinking Powerade uh, for some reason. Uh, and and the other thing they'd done, I mean, this is actually I, I remember the woman who showed us around. She said that the first day they showed up, she went and and dug them a big mud pit. And they were just completely uninterested. And she was like, "Oh, this is really sad. You know, they clearly don't know what this is, and so on." And then she realized they already dug themselves a method and they just had no no interest in hers. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. Um, and and so direct action everywhere, which we mentioned earlier, uh, one of the things that they do um, in addition to disruptive protests is like breaking into farms and stealing quote unquote animals away and then sending them to sanctuaries. Um, what what are your thoughts on this practice from a you know EA or open fill standpoint? Yeah, so we don't. I mean, we we don't fund. Uh, the practice. Um, and, and, you know, it actually has a longer history in the animal movement. I think uh, before employment-based investigations, um, these kind of open rescues were, were relatively more common. Um, I, I think it's certainly um, unjust laws that are on the books about this. I mean, you know, my sense is typically uh, when they do break in, they're normally only taking very sick animals who, um, you know, not only yeah. are, they're, they're going to die, uh, and they certainly have no economic value to the farmer at that point. Um, so I think, you know, the fact that they're yeah. being prosecuted 
as, as felony charges uh, is, is pretty outrageous and, and you know, clearly has nothing to do with the property they're alleged to have stolen and uh, has everything to do with the message they're making publicly and, and retaliating against that. Um, you know, that said, I, I think um, I definitely don't encourage people to do things that are felonies, even if, uh, even if I think those laws are, are unjust. I think that, you know, one thing as a movement concerned about the long run is, is I think we do have to be careful um, and, you know, people are going to make their own decisions. But, you know, my personal perspective is I think there are enough things that can be done within the law that, that we don't necessarily need to break them. Yeah, I guess. So maybe an argument in favor of doing things that are attention grabbing and, and lawbreaking is that the moral case is so clearly on the side of the person breaking the law that exposing, you know, bringing any attention to it from the press or, you know, popular, you know, public uh, will increase the you know favorability of animal rights overall in the same way that like you know helping slaves escape from slavery was definitely a good thing even though it was you know against federal law at the time um it's something that like we look back on and see those people as heroes yeah and look i mean i think there are there were definitely unjust laws i mean i think uh ag gag laws would be at the, the top of that list i, I certainly mm-hmm. uh uh you know think that someone who who breaks an ag gag law to expose cruelty on a factory farm uh that that should not be a crime and they should not be should not be condemned for that um i think it's all really just a question about the degree of risk but i agree with you i mean i think that uh, dxe has attracted a huge amount of media attention and i think we just need to be careful that the media attention we attract is always positive um you know this is certainly very different from what yeah. dxe is doing i know they are committed to non-violence uh but you know back in the 2000s early 2010s uh, the the UK animal rights movement uh, sort of developed a militant way that took more violent tactics. And you still see this in the US and in some of the anti-animal testing um, activists. And I just think that's very counterproductive. I mean, I think that um, I'm completely in favor of, of breaking unjust laws, but I, I don't think it's ever helped our cause to be framed as, as militant or to be framed as, as uh, actively causing harm to other people. Yeah. Yeah, there's some interesting writing within anarchism where, you know, there's a period of time where it was associated with political violence and there mm-hmm. was the propaganda of the deed. So, you know, trying to kill a capitalist who was, you know, abusing workers and killing workers who go on strike. Like Henry Henry Clay Frick uh, was almost assassinated by an anarchist. Um, but the thought kind of has developed since then and, and most anarchists like disabuse any endorsement of uh, violence or terrorism. That's just like not very productive to the overall goal. Um, and so it's not like in principle, you should never use violence more like it's just not actually a good strategy or tactic to pursue if you're trying to advance certain. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I would go further. And I think uh, I, I think this is a good principle for, for not using violence and, and for trying to you know act in a way that we would want others to act. Um, but I, I think certainly practically and, and to be clear, I, I don't think any of these activists I'm referring to ever killed anyone or ever um, caused substantial physical harm. But I think. You know, even even property damage, I think forms of violence like that are just not needed in our movement. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think it just comes down to a matter of like tactics, mm-hmm. like what what works and what doesn't. Um, because I think the moral case is just so clear that this practice needs to stop as soon as possible. And the question is just how do we get there? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think um, we can we we can agree we want to use the most effective tactics. So I think that's something where you know wherever someone comes down on the principle of this. Um, I think the the right question is how to be most effective. And I know there are a lot of activists who a decade ago took uh, more aggressive approaches uh, targeting fur, for instance. So I don't think ever causing harm to individuals, but perhaps causing property damage at the time. 
And I think they came to see that that was really ineffective, that it didn't, it didn't get them anywhere. And so you see a lot of those people now um, being involved in more effective forms of advocacy. I think it's important we learn, we learn those lessons. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess like looking forward in terms of where the movement is going, um, what reforms beyond, you know, let's say battery cages are eliminated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what are the reforms on the horizon? You mentioned stunning fish. Um, is there a popular movement behind that? Is there anything focusing on, you know, larger mammals? Um, that open Phil is thinking about or you think the movement is heading towards? Well, so we've, we've definitely been focused on the most numerous uh, farmed animals or at least the most numerous uh, vertebrate species. And so mm-hmm. we've been focusing on, on getting rid of battery cages for hens, uh, getting rid of the worst practices with regards to broiler chickens, um, particularly um, the overcrowding of them and the, the poor genetics um, and a number of ways in which that gap and, and then improving things for, for farmed fish. Um, but there's, I mean, there's work to be done, unfortunately, on every species. So, you know, when it comes to pigs, uh, a number of companies committed a few years back to getting rid of gestation crates. Uh, we need to hold them to those commitments. We need to make sure that they actually get rid of those crates. And we need to take that globally. Uh, I think that we need to improve the treatment of graphics. We need to get rid of things like castration without pain relief. Um, you know, same deal, I think, with cows. I mean, we, we need to get rid of some of the most abusive practices. And so it all really just comes back to being in this triage situation where, uh, sadly, for any species, there are numerous uh, bad things happening to them uh, that do need to be reformed, a lot of practices that need to be banned. Um, but I think we, we have to take it one step at a time, and we have to work out what are the first steps where we can have the greatest impact. Yeah. And do you think there's any legitimacy to the criticism that, like, you know, by making these practices more humane or, or less bad, you're kind of legitimizing them in the eyes of the public? Yeah, I've, I've never seen evidence. I mean, I think... Um, I understand the concern, uh, but I think realistically that so little of the public is is geared in to what's happening uh, on factory farms mm-hmm. in the first place. That really any news about factory farming, even if it's about them improving their conditions, uh, tends to be bad factory farms. And yet it's funny, what we've seen is that companies making commitments, for instance, to, to get rid of battery cages, they tend not to publicize those commitments. And the primary reason I've heard for why they don't is because they know their consumers, their customers, would be disgusted to learn they were using these cages in the first place. <laughs> and and oftentimes, yeah. when their customers learn about cage-free environments, they don't know those are too great either. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people, their baseline expectation is that animals are being treated well. And so yeah. anything uh, that publicizes just how far away we are from that, I, I think is good. Uh, so, you know, I, I certainly understand people who, who think that, uh, they don't want to get involved in welfare reforms for that reason. They, you know, I think there are all sorts of valid objections, um, but I do think they've been a really effective tactic, and I do think they're an important piece in the movement. Yeah, I'm reminded of an Oscar Wilde quote uh, about how the slave owner who treats his slave uh, well is actually worse than the slave owner who treats his slave poorly <laughs> because he's like making the system you know last longer, and it just seems like. Oh, like that's kind of interesting at first, but then you think about it for like five seconds and it just seems like, no, it's pretty clearly you're just doing more harm to somebody. And slavery is like obviously wrong to anybody who like thinks about it for any amount of time. Yeah. Well, the the thing that the the logical extension of this argument that I've always found the most troubling is, you know, if if we shouldn't improve a lot of animals for fear of, of making people accept factory farming, should we make a lot of animals worse? I mean, you know, should we should yeah. we see like if, if farms aren't yet blinding all of their animals? Uh, what about if you know someone pushed for that and and, and therefore people would be even more outraged by factory farming? So to me, it just leaves you in this uh, 
very uncomfortable position. And I think that uh, yeah. I, I feel a lot better being in a position saying, let's let's do what we can for animals in front of us, and and you know let's let's try and reduce as much suffering as we can. Yeah, and if you apply those arguments to global poverty or health, mm-hmm. um, it gets into some like really horrifying uh, positions where like, oh no, we should make people even worse off in the global south, um, and them even more poor and more sick because that way people will wake up to how bad things really are. And it's like right. I think that things are bad enough as it is. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. You know, and I, I definitely avoid uh, comparing a lot of animals with a lot of humans because I think they're they're always very different. But I'm certainly can imagine for myself. You know, if, if I were in the position of a pig in one of these crates, would I want someone to get me out of that crate, uh, or would I want someone to you know make sure that uh, we brought down the whole system first and to me, it's very clear what I would want the animal in those environments. Yeah. I mean, you see that kind of like utopian thinking uh, in a lot of the worst totalitarian movements in human history. <laughs> the promise of like this glorious future where, you know, you solve everything justifies any amount of suffering to, to get to that point. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think uh, one thing I really like about victim altruism is I think it generally steers clear of, of utopian thinking and instead tries to work out kind of what, what can we do in the practical here and now and, and what are the actual steps we can take? Yeah, I, I guess I'm still utopian in the sense that I think about it as, you know, our, our guiding light. You know, would we have animal farming in a utopian society? And the answer to me is no, because there's no way to really do it. You know, humanely, same thing for prisons um, or other, you know, oppressive forces. Um, but it doesn't mean we just like abolish it overnight if that were even feasible, because that creates all kinds of other problems that we can't even foresee in the, in the first place. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, I agree. I think it's valuable to have a vision for people to work toward. And I think it's, it's also valuable to, to step back sometimes and say, if we were creating the world from scratch, would we do it this way? And I mean, I think, you know, I think that's a good yeah. question on factory farming, because, you know, if you just describe the system to people, no one would, would create the world that way. I mean, no one but a sadist would, uh, would say we have to create the world that way. And so I think it can be really useful yeah. to step back and, and say, hey, this has only come about because of a whole bunch of different contingent factors. And if we want to achieve the kind of world we actually want to live in, this is incompatible with it. So how do we go about changing that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for anybody who's listened to this and been thoroughly revolted or depressed or whatever, what, what would you ask them to do? You know, as an individual, like if it's donations, diet change, what organizations should they support? Um, how should they think about their careers? You know, what call to action would you make? Yeah, I think the most important thing is to get involved in advocacy. Uh, so, you know, pull what you were saying earlier. I think that we need to achieve systemic change. So, you know, I think if someone does want to reduce um, the harm that their diet causes, um, avoiding factory farmed products, particularly uh, fish and chicken and eggs, is is a valuable change. Um, but I think the most valuable thing someone can do is, is get involved with groups fighting factory farming. So get involved with the Humane League, Mercy for Animals, Animal Equality, the Good Food Institute. Uh, you can go to Animal Charity Evaluators. Uh, has a list of basically all the groups in the movement and, and has information on some of them. Um, and yeah, then get involved in, in the way that, that makes sense for you. I mean, some of us have financial resources to contribute. Some have expertise, some have time. And so I, I would think about what, what is it you can best contribute to this movement. Yeah. And then in terms of uh, donations, I think I've actually directed some of my donations to the Effective Altruism Animal Welfare Fund, which I believe you manage with somebody else. Yeah, exactly. We manage. Uh, so Natalie Cargill and I are both involved in managing it. And then there's actually, uh, we're about to announce uh, three new people um, involved ah. in, in managing that fund. So your, your money is uh, in good hands. 
<laughs> cool, cool. And and so, could you just explain like how that fund works for somebody who's never heard of it before? Sure. Yeah. So the the um, effective altruism uh, funds are really the idea is just for people who have kind of limited time to to look at all the different options. Uh, want to just basically do the most good on the issue. Um, it's an opportunity to have people who spend a lot more time, like me, um, help guide that money toward groups that we think can make the best use of it. And so in the case of the Animal Welfare Fund, uh, what that's primarily meant has been smaller organizations that we're unlikely to grant to through Open Fill. Uh, so I think, you know, obviously, if, if I find an organization, a big organization that I think is a great bet, we'll probably try and fill a large portion of its, its room for funding from Open Philanthropy. Um, but I think what, what we see routinely is a lot of these small organizations where they could use $20,000, maybe $30,000. Um, and I think that's where the EA fund has really enabled us to uh, experiment a lot more, to, to broaden the field, I mean, to make grants in countries where we're not yet making grants as, as open philanthropy. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's really my primary hope for the fund is mm-hmm. that it, it supports new ideas in the movement, it supports new regions in the movement, it supports works on, on new approaches in the movement. Interesting. So, you know, the expected value might be a little bit higher, but like there might be more risk of failure for, for some of these uh, organizations that you're funding. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that, you know, for instance, uh, I think in some of these cases, we're sort of giving the first money that, you know, the only uh, farm animal advocacy group in like the Philippines had gotten or, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, one of the other, well, they, they eat a lot of meat over there. There are these, there are these huge countries, Indonesia, you know, where huge numbers of animals, but to date, very little advocacy and very little funding. And, um, you know, one of the things I actually really appreciate with the EA fund is that they have been remarkably flexible about just getting money to new entities, to individuals, to, to all kinds of things that are very hard for foundations or individual donors, uh, to fund. Um, but that they've, mm. they found ways to fund. Um, so yeah, that's, that's exactly my hope with this is that maybe we can achieve a higher expected value, uh, by taking on more risk. Gotcha. And then I, I meant to ask this at the beginning, but what's your assessment of how much money goes towards farmed animal welfare and what portion of that is coming from open fill? Yeah. So it depends a lot on how you define it. Uh, so there are of course, um, sanctuaries. There are, um, a lot of, of major animal groups like humane society or like the ASPCA that do some work on farm animals. So the, um, what I think is probably the most uh, reasonable way to define it is actually bigger than, than what I estimated, I think, on the 80,000 Hours podcast a few years ago. I now think that we're closer to somewhere between 150, 170 million globally. Um, that's, taking a, that's, mm-hmm. that's not including shelters, but it's including anything that could be classified as advocacy. And it's taking a broader view of like how much of the budget of, of PETA, for instance. You know, PETA, much of their work is focused on farm animals or veganism, and, and they're a $40 million a year organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a good portion of the Humane Society's work is focused on this. They're a $130 million a year organization. So, you know, when you start to add up those pieces. So I think that a lot of people would probably object to that characterization of numbers because the the groups that I think many people are most excited about in this space are still operating in the range of somewhere between $3 million and $10 million a year. Um, and, and then, you know, of course, there are plenty of groups out there with way less than $1 yeah. million a year. So, the, the funding as a whole, um, yeah, about about that level. Now, of that, we're $35 million a year. So um, a substantial share, but, but you know, certainly way, well short of a majority or anything. Yeah. I mean, does it ever make you uncomfortable to be, like, playing such a large role in this, you know, open philanthropies, biases or short uh, shortfalls or, you know, 
blind spots could be kind of extrapolated across the entire industry. Yeah, it makes me very, very uncomfortable. I mean, I think, um, <laughs> you know, there's first just a more basic practical concern, which is um, we worry about being too large a share of any one organization's budget. So, you know, you take mm-hmm. a group like the Humane, like we're really excited about the work we're doing, um, but we don't want to be the majority of their funding. We don't want to be in a position where, you know, if, if we change our mind, their organization goes down. And so I think that's, I think that's one yeah. consideration. And I think sometimes other donors can see us coming in and say, oh, cool, we don't need to fund that anymore. But, you know, really the opposite's the opposite is true. Um, but then in terms of the bias question, you, you said, I think definitely. I mean, I think we are, you know, we're human. And um, one thing I've been really excited to do over the last year and a half is to add two more people to my team. And I think they bring different perspectives. Um, I think that they often provide a check on my initial impulses. And so, you know, we get a little more uh, thought out of that. And, and you know, the other thing is I, I definitely try and read um, when I can posts on the Effective Altruism Forum or, or in other venues or, or, you know, talk to people at conferences, ask uh, what, what they think we're doing wrong, ask what we're missing. Um, but, but, yeah, I'm very conscious that, that we are still we still have a huge influence over the course of the field. And, and that's another reason why I started working more with other donors is I would love to see there be a broader set of donors. So we make up a, a less significant share of the movement and so that we have more of that diversity of thought. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, what, what criticisms of open philanthropy and I guess the farm animal work specifically do you think are most valid and the ones that concern you the most? Yeah. So I think there are a couple. Uh, so one would be that we're, we're overly focused on, uh, short-term incremental changes uh, at the expense mm-hmm. of, of longer-term, uh, perhaps less linear changes. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think I definitely have a bias toward things that have a feedback loop where we can see, you know, in, in two years, is this working or not? Um, but I think there are mm-hmm. people who, you know, credibly claim, uh, look, some of the most important social changes in history happened from things that you, you couldn't see anything happening for 10 years or 20 years. And then there was a breakthrough. And I think... Um, that's really hard as a funder because you get a lot of these opportunities. People say, hey, we're going to achieve change, but you won't be able to know for 20 years whether it's happening or not. You know, and that's a, that's a really tough proposition. You have to have a lot of, of faith in people. And there's a risk that you bring in even more bias at that point because there's no way to falsify, falsify your belief. Um, but I, think that's, I still think that's a very serious objection. Yeah. Um, and I think there probably are things out there that we're missing for that reason. Um, a second thing is um, I think the argument that we're not focused enough on alternatives to animal products and in particular, we haven't done anything on cell-based meat, uh, growing meat. Um, so I think that's another major, very valid objection. Um, and then more broadly, I think there are a set of objections just around moral framework. I mean, I think we are um, unambiguously consequentialists, um, you know, basically utilitarians. And I think people who come yeah. from a more rights-based approach, um, you know, understandably, you're going to have a very different perspective on things. And, and so from their perspective, it's not great that one of the biggest funders in the field is is so consequential as focused. Yeah. And, and so the animal rights perspective might be fighting for something like getting legal status that is mm-hmm. similar for people for different animals, starting with like orangutans or something like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we've done nothing on the, uh, you know, legal personhood issue. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a good example of something that both people who come from a rights perspective would be much more excited about. But also, you know, I think people who who think that most change is going to happen in a non-linear fashion, I think that's the kind of thing they might point to is, look, that's the kind of thing we think there can be major change on a 20-year timeline. Um, so, you know, you should be doing more of that now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, big changes like Supreme Court decisions around, you know, right. marriage or abortion rights have led to like widespread changes very fast. But 
there was often a large movement around them in the first place. So yeah, no, that's that, that's right. And I mean, I think um, I, I definitely acknowledge. I think there was a, a role for many different approaches beyond the ones we're supporting. And you know, I think something people don't see is is there are other big funders out there. They're just not as public as us. And in particular, you know, there's another funder about our size that primarily takes a rightist approach and and does focus more on those kind of things. And so, you know, part of our giving, most of our giving is just working out directly what do we think will have the most impact. But we're, we're thinking about that in the environment of what are other funders doing. So if there wasn't this other funder backing those approaches, I think I would be thinking even more about maybe we should be doing more of that. Maybe we need to diversify more. Which funder is that? Well, so I, I'm intentionally uh, giving no details because this funder ah. prefers to be anonymous, which I, I completely understand if you're you know, backing a lot of, of animal rights uh, groups. <laughs> gotcha. That, fair enough. Um, cool. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about this, are there any books, articles, documentaries, et cetera, that you would recommend? So I think um, just learning about factory farming. There are a couple of, of great introductory books. So, I mean, the classic is animal liberation, uh, which, you know, both makes the case for why you should care, but also outlines a lot of the worst practices of factory farming, which sadly, even though it was published in 1975, I think, uh, remain largely true today. Um, a second one would be mm-hmm. Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foyer. Um, I think that's a really uh, powerful book and a very readable one. Um, a third one that I think probably no one uh, would think of, but it's on it's on Amazon. You can get it in a Kindle format. Is uh, Animal Machines by Ruth Harrison. So this was the book I referred to a while ago. It's from 1964, I think, um, and was really the first book, at least that I know of, on factory farming. And uh, again, it's it's the case both that the practices she outlines, but also the the excuses and rationalization from industry that she addresses. Uh, remain exactly the same today. So it's it's sadly still a very relevant book. Um, the um, so yeah, in terms of books, I would I would probably start there. Um, you know, in terms of of sort of the state of the movement today, understanding things. I think Animal Charity Evaluators is a good resource. They have uh, a lot of articles. They have reviews with groups. I don't think they're always right. They probably don't think they're always right, but I think they have a lot of of good information there, and and it's a useful place to to at least gain information. Um, I put out a, a roughly once a month newsletter that kind of delves into some of these issues. So if, if people want to sign up for that, they can go to the Open Philanthropy Project or just Google Open Philanthropy Project Farm Animal Welfare Newsletter and uh, that, that will come up. Um, and then otherwise, you know, probably Twitter is, is the best place to keep up to date on what's actually going on. So I think there are a lot of people on Twitter who, you know, whether they're activists themselves, whether they're experts, academics, uh, you know, that, that's where I get much of my information about what's kind of the latest going on in the space. Yeah. Yeah. I have some friends who have something like 40,000 Twitter followers um, <laughs> who only care about animal stuff. And if they tweet anything not related to animals, they get no reaction whatsoever. <laughs> it's like this very constrained superpower. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's great. Cool. Uh, any place, anything that you'd personally like to plug, where can people find you and, and learn more about your work? Um, yeah, they can, you know, jump on. I'm on Twitter. Uh, got the newsletter, but I, I think much more important than uh, plugging myself is I would I'd really encourage people to check out uh, the Humane League, Good Food Institute, Animal Equality, Mercy for Animals. Uh, you know, or just go online and read more about factory farming. Uh, I think that that may be you know one of the most important things anyone who's new to this issue can do. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, really glad you're working on this. You're clearly very passionate and knowledgeable about it and uh, excited that if somebody's going to be allocating, you know, $35 million a year towards it, uh, they have a good head on their shoulders. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's very kind. And thanks for your concern about the issue and, and devoting a podcast episode to this. This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.